This is Tiger Hall. If you've been listening to this trail from the beginning, we are now halfway through these conversations exploring why being a working mother is still so shit. We've heard from Marianne Cooper to give us a sociological foundation of why things are the way they are. We've heard from Sheila Subramaniam, who says the current system is broken and it's high time we fixed it. We've heard from Lindsay Blakey to give us the HR perspective. And now it's time to dive a bit deeper. What does the research say? I'm about to speak to Juliana Horowitz, Associate Director of Research at Pew Research Center. Some of the things we're going to touch on are how the pandemic has changed things, what the research tells us about parental leave. And one thing I'm also so aware of is that my line of questioning throughout this trail is heavily influenced by me being a straight white woman. What might I be missing about other people's experience? Here's Juliana. Okay, Juliana, why is being a working mother still so shit? Is that the technical term for it? <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, sure. that's a great question. I think we'll spend the next several minutes unpacking that question with the challenges of working moms. And, um, you know, we've been asking, maybe not exactly in those words, but we've been asking about the challenges of working mothers in our surveys for a very long time, you know, pre-pandemic and during the pandemic and looking forward to getting into this conversation and sharing some of that data with you. Great. Okay. So at Pew Research Center, you seem to have a ton of research about the experience of working parents, most of which seems to confirm in quite a big way, really, that being a busy working mom involves far more challenges than being a busy working dad. I'd love if you could break down some of the most interesting recent research related to the challenges working moms are facing at the moment. Sure. You know, one of the challenges for working moms is that they often feel like they're not doing enough at work, but also feel like they're not doing enough at home, right? And so it's almost like a situation where it's it's impossible to win. And so working moms are far more likely than working dads to say that there have been times during their career where they felt like they couldn't give 100% at work, where they had to take some time off, right? They experienced career interruptions, where they felt like they were passed down, passed over or turned down for a promotion or for important assignments, and so working moms are dealing with that much more than working dads. And especially full-time working moms, a majority of them say that being a working parent makes it harder for them to succeed in their job or career, but also that it makes it harder for them to be a good parent. Mm -hmm. And so again, they're juggling with these pressures to be a good parent, to be present at home, to be an involved parent. You know, and when we look at time use data, and if we look at full-time working parents, Working moms are spending more time in childcare and household chores than working dads when, even when both work full time, you know, and, and so there's this, again, like this conflict of having to maybe give less of yourself at work, but you're still not feeling like you're doing enough at home. And, you know, one thing that's really interesting with this, the statistics with the time use is that, you know, so that comes from government time use data where people do time diaries. But then we've also asked people in our surveys, these are, we've asked married or, or cohabiting parents in opposite sex relationships. So we could look at the dynamics, you know, when there's, when there's a man and a woman in the house. And it's really interesting. We've asked questions about, you know, who does more when it comes to household chores? Who does more when it comes to managing your kids' schedules or when it comes to comforting them, you know, when they're not feeling well? And it's really interesting because moms tend to say they do more than their spouse or partner does. 
but dads tend to say they do about the same, right? So the perceptions <laughs> right. of what's happening in the household are also so misaligned, which sort of gives you an idea of, of what's happening there with moms often doing so much more, but also trying to have a career, trying to be successful, trying to not have to step out of the labor force, you know, which often leads to gender wage gaps and other financial consequences for, for women. Mm. Actually, I heard about a great app the other day, which is supposed to help couples balance the workload at home and things like the mental load and make it really clear if one person's doing more than the other. Uh, I, I perhaps shouldn't have brought it up if I can't remember the name of the app, which I can't. Um, maybe I can put it in the in the show notes if I track down the name, but it sounded pretty useful. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, like, and we saw, of course, during the pandemic, there's been so much focus on working moms, right? And, and, and I think the pandemic highlighted a lot of the things that had already been happening. So none of what we've seen, I mean, maybe some of the circumstances obviously were, were different and were new. We've never been through that before. But the challenges that working moms face have been the same and, and haven't changed. And so I think the pandemic just exacerbated some of the trends that we've been seeing for a long time. Mm, okay, I'd love to ask you more about that. If we could dive a little bit deeper into the the questions the pandemic has raised and the research from this, what what are the findings? Right. So of course, there were many challenges during the pandemic in the, in the very early days. So we did a survey in in March of 2020. So really, really early days of the pandemic. And we asked working parents, particularly working parents with children younger than 12, right? So working parents that maybe, you know, whose kids needed a little bit more hands-on help and, and care. And then mm -hmm. in the very early days, both working moms and working dads said that it was fairly easy for them to handle work and childcare responsibilities, which seems counterintuitive. But I think at that point, everybody still felt like this was only for two weeks, right? This is, this is a very, it's, it's very temporary. It's only for two weeks. I think a lot of employers were still being somewhat flexible because it was yeah. such an unusual circumstance. But then as time went on and we kept asking the same question, we saw that particularly for moms, the share saying that it was difficult for them to handle childcare responsibilities during the pandemic it kept going up. And so by um, October of 2020, right? So maybe like five or six months into the pandemic, when a lot of kids were still doing school from home, a lot of childcare centers were still closed, you know, and parents were either working from home and handling childcare responsibilities or even more challenging for the parents who weren't able to stay home and who maybe had no one to leave their kids with. And then that was really difficult. And especially for moms, the majority of moms at that point, close to 60% of moms at that point were saying that it was hard for them to handle childcare responsibilities. And for those who were working from home, both moms and dads said that they had childcare responsibilities during the workday. So they were juggling both work and their kids while they're, you know, during that time when schools were closed. But moms were about twice as likely to say they had a lot of childcare responsibilities while they were working. So 36% mm. of moms compared to 16% of dads said that they, and again, this is in the fall of 2020 and October 2020, moms were far more likely to say that they were both, you know, while they were working, they were also caring for children. We see that in time use data and what's called secondary child care. So, you know, parents, while they're doing something else, but they're also not fully in, you know, in a child care activity, but they might be answering a question while they're working and their kid maybe is home from school and they're trying to help their kid with something while they're juggling work. And time spent in secondary child care went up, that gender gap in time spent in secondary child care went up during the pandemic. So 
in work that we did about a year ago, so two years into the pandemic, it was working parents and especially working moms were still juggling the difficulty of backup childcare. At that point, most kids were back to school. A lot of daycare centers were open. But, you know, every time a child got sick, sometimes, the, you know, the whole class was shut down for two weeks or 10 days or two weeks. And so parents were having to deal with also backup child care. And again, moms are more likely to experience those interruptions when, you know, at the last minute they find out that, that there's no one to watch their children. But just just so I'm clear, so men feel like they're doing an equal share. Like in 2020, did they feel like they were doing an equal share of the child giving when everyone was at home, but the moms are finding it harder? They did. I mean, like we, so, so those same questions that we had asked before the pandemic, we actually, it was really interesting. Like we actually repeated some of those questions that we've asked several times before. We repeated them during the pandemic and we saw very similar patterns. Again, we asked the, with a question about feeling sometimes like you couldn't give a hundred percent at work, experiencing career interruptions, you know, before we had asked about it, in the context of your whole career, you know, have there been times during your whole time as a working parent where this had been the case? And then we asked, you know, during the pandemic, we asked, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, have there been times when this has been the case? And the results were very similar. So for more moms, you know, saying that there were times where they couldn't give 100% at work, they were treated by their employer as if they weren't as committed to work. And also the questions about who was handling what at home. Um, we saw similar patterns with moms saying they were doing more, dads saying they did about the same. And again, it's not to say that dads weren't juggling all these different responsibilities. I mean, we, you know, the, the majority of dads and actually a pretty equal share of moms and dads said who were working from home said they had at least some childcare responsibilities during the workday. But it's just that moms were far more likely to say they had a lot of childcare responsibilities during the day. Yeah. I'm almost, I'm hearing critics listen to this and just want to make sure we're being really clear. So women say they're doing more work. How do we know they are doing more work? Right. So the time use data shows that, right? And, and so, you know, what we, during the pandemic, what we found was that, uh, you know, we always find the gender gap in how much time men and women spend in childcare, including when mm. both work full time. You know, in the pandemic, that secondary care was especially the case. But we, you know, but we have been looking at time use data for a long time. And so yeah, a few years ago, when one of the times that we asked this question, and then we got at this, the different perceptions that men and women have of who's doing more. And then we had a publication that says, you know, it depends on who you ask, but then you know, because they have different perceptions. But then we also had the time use data. And so this is when people like fill out time use diaries and they account for every minute of their day for a certain period yeah. of time. And so we know, I mean, like we know that when, you know, full-time working moms and full-time working dads, dads tend to spend more time at work than full-time working moms, which I think, again, speaks to that sense of maybe feeling like you can't give 100% at work or feeling like, you know, maybe you're the, the primary parent when the school calls or when, you know, when the child's sick. So full-time working dads spend more time on average at work than full-time working moms. And full-time working moms spend more time on average than full-time working dads doing childcare and household chores. So that's going to have massive impact on their careers, right? Right. So that, so that has a big impact on their careers. And we know that career interruptions or not the full explanation for the gender wage gap. There are lots of different explanations, but we do know that women experiencing career interruptions and, you know, and, and the gender wage gap 
often, you know, like it, it, some of the research shows that the wage gap starts out much narrower early on in people's careers. And as they get older and, and as they get, as they get to that sort of those years where they're likely to be having kids and experiencing those interruptions, that's when the wage gap starts to, to widen. Okay. So straight out of university, people are on a similar wage. And then once they get to the years when they're having kids, that's when it really starts to. That's, that's when show you start up. to see more of the, the widening of the gender wage gap. Wow. So parental leave is one thing I wanted to ask you about. And so many organizations offer really varied leaves. There seems to be a lot of different opinions about the ideal length and the best way to structure these policies. What does the research show us about parental leave? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, as you know, in the United States, that there's no mandated paid leave, yeah. paid parental leave. Um, and so some, some companies offer it. Most companies don't. A lot of people cobble pay leave together from other um, benefits that they might have, whether it's short-term disability or, you know, sick leave or, you know, but, but a lot of people don't have like a dedicated paid leave benefit for parental leave. Yeah. So we did some, um, we did some work a few years ago looking at, at paid leave, both the, at people's attitudes about it, but also the experiences of people who had taken time off or who had needed but weren't able to take time off in the, in the couple of years prior to the, to the survey. Um, and, and it was really interesting. I mean, we, there were lots of different things, right? One is that the median length of maternity leave for, for women was about 11 weeks for, mm. for dads. Parental leave, um, was about one week. And the majority mm. of dads said that they took less time off than they had wanted to or they, or felt that they needed to. A lot of moms said mm. that too. Um, closer to half of moms, but dads were more likely to say that they went back to work more quickly than they might have wanted to or that maybe they needed to. And there are a few different reasons for that. Um, one, um, again, the lack of paid leave. So for, for a lot of them is just not, you know, feeling like they couldn't afford to take more time off. So that was one of the issues. But there are lots sure, of yeah. other more sort of societal you know, more cultural issues too that we saw with men tend to feel like there's more pressure on dads to come back to work quickly, um, that there's more pressure on men to be providers and, and to be successful in their careers. So concerns about being passed over for an important assignment, um, you know, mm. those types of concerns, you know, were very clear. It, and again, both for men and women, you know, women also, of course, especially lower income moms, with, you know, who, who often are less likely to have some of these benefits. Of course, they also feel the pressure to have to go back to work quickly and they, and they tend to take shorter leaves than, than women with higher incomes, right? And so, so there's that pressure on women too, and especially lower income women to go back to work quickly for financial reasons. Mm. But men really do feel that pressure from their employers and, and to be providers and to be successful at their job. And, and also many Americans, um, you know, this was a survey of, of Americans, but many Americans, also feel that it's more important for babies to have more time to bond with their moms than with their dads. And so one of the things that was really interesting as part of this work, we did a series of focus groups and it was just really interesting hearing from dads who would say, you know, who maybe took maybe two or three days off from work when their babies mm -hmm. were born. And then they said, you know, once grandma showed up, I wasn't needed anymore. And so it was just fascinating to just hear like how they saw their role, right? They were interchangeable. As long as there was somebody there to help, it didn't have really? to be them. And their role was just to help, right? Like it, their, their role wasn't to also bond with their baby or to be there as for this family time. 
um, that their role is just to help. And, and again, part of it, you know, is financial pressures, but, but we know there are studies that show that even when men and women are offered paid leave and the same amount of paid leave, right? So even when that financial pressure isn't there, that men are less likely to take it or they're less likely to take the full leave that's, that's offered to them because it often doesn't feel like it's truly being offered to them, right? Like that the, the policy is there, but that people will still look down on them for taking maybe three or four months off. And, and so they rush back to work and often feel like it wasn't enough time. Yeah, I, I guess I can really understand that pressure, right? If no one around you is taking that leave. I mean, it's funny because both Lindsay, who I chatted to the other day, also mentioned this. And Shu, later on in this trail, he's going to be talking about how he took this long seven-month paternity leave that was so unusual, it warranted a whole TED talk about it. That's how unprecedented it was for a man to take such a substantial parental leave. Yeah, I mean, like, well, it's interesting because... You know, my, when, when my kids were born, my husband took a couple of weeks off. And a few years ago, like I mentioned, somebody at my work who was taking a dad who was taking three months off. And my husband's reaction was, what's he going to do for three months? <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is somebody who, who is a, a very involved father, but who said, what, like, what's he going to, why is he taking three? What? um what's the point in that so i think i think men still hear that you know and they they get that the sort of questioning like but but why okay so you mentioned societal expectations and i've actually i've become a bit fixated on this in this trail because it's something i've become aware of in my own life this sort of social conditioning based on traditional gender roles and how they play a part in all this so how do you think our views on traditional gender roles play in how we take parental leave, as we've just been discussing, but also on the the overall bias towards working mothers? Yeah, I mean, like, I think that's a great question. I mean, like, I, I think part of where it shows up, again, is in, in these questions that we've asked about how much pressure men and women face to do different things, right? And so the vast majority of Americans think that women face a lot of pressure to be an involved parent that men face a lot of pressure to provide financially for their family, to be good at their job or career, um, you know, far less so than they think women face those challenges. And similarly, they don't think that men face the same pressures to be involved parents. Mm -hmm. We've asked questions about what, what people think society values more when it comes to men and when it comes to women and when it comes to men, you know, people think society value, values their contributions at work more so than their contributions at home, mm-hmm. but that society values women's contributions at home more than their contributions at work, right? And so, so there's still very much these societal expectations about who's going to be the nurturer, who's going to be the caretaker, you know, and, and what women should be prioritizing as they're thinking about work and family that, that women are feeling this pressure to really prioritize their family and that men you know, even if they wanted to prioritize spending being an involved parent, that the the messages they're getting is that, you know, being a good dad is prioritizing being the the provider, right? The financial provider rather mm-hmm. than the nurturer. You know, and so we see it in, in the study on on um, parental leave. We see it, right, that men are are feeling that pressure to go back to work, both financially and in terms of just their role, you know, like that, why, you know, why are you home? Like, is this a vacation? Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, mm. where you're needed in the office, right? And these contributions are more important. So yeah, I mean, like, I think the research shows that it's, of course, there's structural issues there, but there is very much a feeling of, of the societal expectations of 
of who's the provider and who's the nurturer. Yeah. Well, it completely makes sense. I can completely understand men feeling that way, that they need to rush back to work. But I, I, I've become, as I say, quite fixated on the idea of sort of societal expectations because I feel we can't just eradicate this bias against mothers and the motherhood penalty until we look at the root. And it's something that goes quite deep, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've also asked questions about, you know, the extent to which people think that men are, and women are different in terms of their approach to parenting, in terms of how they express emotions, in terms of their physical strength. And then we've asked follow-up questions for people who think they're different. And a lot of people do see differences. And then we've asked mm -hmm. follow-up questions. Do you think these differences are mostly based on societal expectations or are they mostly based on biology, right? Biological differences. Mm. And of course, like with everything that we do, um, especially with research in the United States, there's a big political gap, right? The party gap, the party polarization is huge and it's huge on, on issues of gender roles. And so, you know, Democrats and Republicans both tend to see differences, but Democrats tend to think those differences are rooted in societal expectations and Republicans more so tend to see those differences as, as being rooted in biology. But people do see a difference in terms of how men and women approach parenting and, and how they approach their careers. So again, like whether you think that's biological or societal, you still see it as being there, right? Like as, as being a driving force and in, in maybe people's decisions or, in, you know, or just people's like approach to, to life and family and work. Hey, sorry to so rudely interrupt my own conversation, but I just wanted to let you know that this is a Tiger Hall podcast. Tiger Hall is the world's leading social learning platform, and we have hundreds of interviews just like this with amazing senior business leaders from around the world. These can all be accessed via the Tiger Hall app, which is free to download. You get free content every month and new stuff is uploaded every workday. I hope to see you there. Is there any research into gender-neutral toys and whether this is valuable for the next generation, how they'll grow up to view their careers and view their, their parts in society? Gender-neutral toys is always something that I thought was a bit, like, come on, we're going a bit too far now, but actually I'm sort of starting to see the, the point. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like, I think a lot of toy companies are starting to see, you know, like, there's, there's been, you know, a lot of news about toy companies trying to, like, in some ways, like, move away from sort of marketing toys to boys or girls, which, you know, like, yeah. from a business perspective, it makes sense that if you, if you stop doing that, then it opens it up so that more people can buy your toys, right? Like, any, anybody can play yeah. with any toy. So from a business <laughs> perspective, it makes total sense. In terms of the, the research that we've done, in terms of attitudes and, and we haven't asked this question since 2017. And I think we need to go back and ask it again, because, you know, in the last five or six years, there's, you know, sort of the, the national conversation around gender has changed so much. And it'd be really interesting to see how these views have or haven't changed. But the question that we asked in the 2017 survey was whether it was good or bad, you know, good thing or bad thing for, we asked separately for girls to play with toys and do activities that have sort of traditionally been associated with boys and then whether it's good or bad for boys to similarly to do play with toys and do activities that had been traditionally associated with girls. And it's really interesting. The majority of Americans think that it's, it's good. Like they're, they're, you know, totally comfortable and think it's a good thing to have this sort of crossover. But people are more comfortable with the, the idea of a girl 
playing with toys or doing activities that have traditionally been thought of as being for boys, more, much more so than to have boys do things that have traditionally been, been seen as feminine or for girls. Right. Um, and, okay. and again, we see a political divide here. We, we also see a gender divide, right? So men especially seem to be uncomfortable with the notion of boys doing things that are considered to be for girls. Um, Republicans are also <laughs> more uncomfortable. <laughs> and, it, and it's so, it's so interesting. It, it's just really interesting to see. I agree. Like it wasn't necessarily surprising, but yeah. it was just really interesting when you think about the extent to which that might limit some things for boys. Right. And that for whatever reason, it doesn't seem as either concerning or threatening or problematic mm. for maybe a girl to play with trucks or to play some sports that might have been traditionally associated with boys. And, and that, that maybe the gender neutrality feels more comfortable if it's with girls, but that maybe a boy playing with a doll or with a toy kitchen or, you know, mm. maybe doing an activity that isn't seen as masculine that, 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 you know, and, and I think again, like that goes back to those societal expectations. And, and, and so I just think that's really interesting. But again, like it's been like five or six years since we asked that question. And, and I, I, I do think we need to revisit it because again, like there's just been so, so much on this and, and so much in the news. And so just the conversation around gender, I think has changed so much. Yeah. So little boys aren't allowed to play the part of the caretaker, whereas with little girls that would be encouraged right that there's that there's more concern right there's more that, that there people are, are less likely to think it's good to encourage boys to to play yeah. that role yeah so interesting you're right um okay juliana i'm really conscious that a lot of my questioning in this trail is coming from the perspective of a cis white woman in an opposite sex relationship because that's my experience of the world, right? Could you share a bit of the research around, I want to ask you about trans parents, same-sex couples, and also women of color. Can we start with with trans parents, if there's any research? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you're asking this question, because this is something that we've been really interested in, not just trans parents, but same-sex parents with LGBTQ um, families. It's something that we're really interested in, but it's incredibly challenging to study these populations. And, and and the reason I'm really glad you asked about this is because I think a lot of people don't realize how small those populations are. In the United States, less than 1% of married households are same-sex um, households. Um, when you look right. at both married and cohabiting, right, so couples who are living together, married or cohabiting households, only about 1.4% are same-sex households. And of course, they're not all raising children. And of course, there, there are people who are also raising children who are, who are not in, in relationships. They're single parents too. But, mm-hmm. but the share of same-sex couples who are raising children is very, very small. And so in terms of trans parents, only about 1.6% of U.S. adults are trans or non-binary, right? And not all of them are, mm-hmm. not all of them have children. Not all of them are necessarily in relationships. And so we're talking about a very small share of the population, which I think is, is easy to, to forget that it's so small. I think especially if you live in an urban center and it, it may be that in your social circles that you know a lot of same-sex parents, you know, a lot of same-sex, a lot of LGBTQ mm. people raising children, but that's not nationally, that's not the case in the United States. And so in order to really do, you know, like a nationally representative 
study that that is rigorous and that is of those populations it's extremely challenging it's extremely expensive and it's something that we're you know we're very interested in and exploring different possibilities and partnerships and you know to, to try to see and maybe it's more qualitative work than quantitative work right maybe it's exploring it through yeah. focus groups but we're really interested like what we're really interested in is sort of the gender dynamics in same-sex couples in sort of the same way that we see with when you're in opposite sex couples and you see these differences in perceptions, we're really interested mm-hmm. in whether in same sex couples, if different people end up falling into sort of different societal expectations, if one ends up yes. playing the more what's yeah. traditionally thought of as the more feminine role and the more masculine role. But again, like I just, again, just want to highlight the fact that these are very small, relatively small populations. And, and so in, in order to really study them in a rigorous way, um, it's extremely challenging. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I guess because I work in tech and I speak to so many people in tech who have a big DEI focus. I mean, I, I guess this seems like such a regular topic. So I'm assuming that the you've got a huge data set from which to pull. But, but yeah, so interesting to hear that the population is actually... Yeah, smaller, smaller than we perhaps think. And how about women of color? Yeah, well, in terms of women of color, like in terms of black women, especially in the U.S., they have historically participated in the labor force um, at higher rates than than other women than other mothers. Mm. And and so it's it's really interesting. Like one of the one of the findings that we've had from our research that I thought was really interesting was that black mothers, in particular were more likely than, especially than white mothers, to say that it was easy for them to to balance work and family. You know, and that's in large part because being a working mother is relatively new for white women. Whereas, Mm -hmm. again, historically, like, black mothers have always had to work and have always worked. And, you know, a few years ago, we did a study where, you know, we asked adults in the United States whether their mothers worked full-time, part-time, or were not employed during the majority of time when they were growing up. And, and most black adults said their mother worked full time, um, which is much higher than the shares of white and Hispanic adults in the United States who said that their mother worked mm-hmm. full time. And so, you know, and so black mothers are a lot more used to seeing other examples of working mothers around them um, and have been for, for decades and for a long time. At the same time, black working moms and, and Hispanic working moms, too, tend to be in lower income jobs, right? And so they have different challenges, especially when it comes to some of the benefits that they might have in terms of being able to take time off and, and not even just, you know, maternity leave, but, but just in terms of, you know, we just did a recent study on parents and, um, you know, and black and Hispanic parents, working parents in particular, the concerns that they have if, if a child's sick and they even have to take a few days off from work, Concerns about losing pay, concerns about potentially losing their job, concerns about not being able to afford some some basic things for their family. And so the challenges are are very real and the challenges are very different. And so I'm really glad that you asked this question because it is something that we always try to to look at our research through the lens of gender, but also race and ethnicity and income. Um, and the challenges yeah. are, are definitely very different. But in terms of, again, in terms of the gender roles, black women in particular, historically have have always been in the labor force but the issue of childcare is still there if you've got a full-time working mom and the father is also working full-time like childcare is the thing that comes up again and again right 
Yeah, childcare is a, is a huge issue. And, and again, like it, it's not just that you might have a, a working mom and a working dad, but in, increasingly there are single women raising children on their own. So there's often not a dad. Yeah. And childcare in the United States is extremely expensive. And so in, in some of the work that we've done, and I know others have done it too, but majority of working parents say that it's, it's, and, and again, especially lower income parents say it's hard to find childcare in, in their community that's both um, affordable and safe, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's, because that's the concern too. You want to make sure that your child's in a safe place. And that can be very difficult. And, and some of the decisions that, that families make sometimes is for women to step away from the workforce because it often doesn't compensate to pay for childcare. But, but of course, then those interruptions, once women are ready to go back to work, because maybe now their kids are in school full time, now they've already had a setback in their career because those are years that they weren't advancing. Yes, I'm going to be speaking to Vrushali later in this trail about the challenges of being a single mum today. But is that, do you have data about how being a single mum impacts your career? Yeah, I mean, like in, in the survey, it doesn't, in our surveys, it doesn't always show up as much. Again, there are sample size limitations. There are lots of different reasons. Yeah. Um, but for example, during the pandemic, one of the things that we saw was that unpartnered women, right? So uh, single moms in particular were more likely to experience career interruptions during the pandemic than, than other moms and then, and then dads, you know, so we know that those childcare challenges were very much felt by single moms. And also single moms are again, like more likely to be lower income. And to be in the types of jobs that maybe were more affected um, by the pandemic. So service jobs, you know, as, as different establishments closed and either temporarily or permanently that, you know, that lower income people in general, lower income workers in general were more affected by it. And so that's another reason why that was so relevant for, for single moms. But again, a lot of them were hand, were having to deal with the lack of childcare while schools were closed and childcare programs were closed. And they had yeah. they didn't have a partner who who could split those responsibilities with them. I can see why people get so fired up about childcare. I mean, because it's just impossible. If you're trying to do it on your own, trying to maintain a career that you care about, work that you need, but you've got no childcare, you're basically screwed. Well, and it's interesting because even when people, even when kids are old enough to start school, right? So even when kids are are in in public school and parents are no longer paying for the bulk of the day. A lot of schools, school day starts after the work day often, and it ends mm. before the work day is done. And so a lot of parents are also faced with having to pay for childcare before and after school. So even when your child is in public school, and so maybe you no longer need to pay for, for full-time childcare, you still need that coverage because you need to, maybe you need to get to work by eight or nine and, and your child yeah. isn't at school yet. And then maybe you're not home till six. But your child's day might be done at four. And, and so even for, you know, this is what we found in our, in one of our studies that it wasn't just for parents with children younger than five, but even for parents with school age children, they were still trying to deal with finding like a safe place for their kids to go after school and being able to afford that was, was still challenging even when you no longer had school age kids. And of course, as your kids get older and can be home alone, some of those burdens ease up a little bit to some extent, but they're, but they're always there. Okay, Juliana, what are the structural changes that would be really beneficial for working mothers? What should we all be striving towards? Yeah, so we at, at the Peer Research Center, we don't make policy recommendations, but we do listen to people, right? And, and so we've asked in our surveys, what, like, what do people want? Like, what are people looking for? 
And it's really interesting because yes, paid leave is very important and people want that and, and people see that as super important to them. So that's one thing, you know, like we've seen in our surveys for people who didn't have paid time off when they were caring for a, a newborn, that many of them have had to go on um, government assistance. They've put off paying their bills. They've taken on loans. So it's a huge financial burden on parents to not have paid leave. But the other thing that was even more important for people was flexibility, right? That people and that, that people, both working moms and dads, really, and, and really all workers looking for flexibility in terms of where they work, when they put in their hours, right? Having a shifted schedule that works for them and that works for their family was also something that, that was seen as, as very important to people. Again, like childcare is another one. So, so access to, to childcare, access to maybe even public childcare, right? So like public preschools um, and things like that. So all of those are things that parents say would be helpful to them if they could have that. But I keep coming back to um, the societal expectations because I think that in some ways that's harder, that's harder to overcome, right? Like I think that there, yeah. there are lots of policies, there's lots of structural changes that would be very helpful. But again, we see even when some of these things are offered, you still see the gender differences and the gender imbalance. And, and so, and I think the reason I keep, I think that's so interesting. I keep coming back to it is again, because that's, that's so ingrained and you need that to come with some of those structural changes in, in order to really see meaningful change. Well, I'm glad that you say that that's something you keep coming back to because throughout this whole series, I keep sort of, I can't resist. I keep asking people about societal expectations and social conditioning. I just, the more I think about it, the more I think it's something fundamental that needs to shift for there to be any meaningful change. That's going to take a long time. Yeah. And it's still, you know, like it's, it's interesting. I mean, we do, we do see some differences by age. And of course, like some of these expectations around gender roles are there like more so among older people but it's not just among older people right like you know like we we did a study several years ago and it was really interesting where we asked young people who didn't have children whether they thought that once they had children if you know if they and their partner would split things 50 50 and young men younger than 30 who didn't have children fully expected that once they had children that they and their partner would share things 50 50. Hmm. But those who actually did have children were not splitting things 50 50, right? Like, you know, their wife or their partner, their female partner, like were taking on more of those responsibilities than they were. And, and again, I mean, like, I think that you can have those expectations. You can have, you can have those goals, right? You can believe that that's where you, where you want to go, how you want to be. But then once you're faced with those pressures, once you're faced with maybe a boss who, you know, maybe you're a new dad, but you're faced with either financial, a financial situation where one of you needs to go back to work quickly. You know, men tend to make more money than women, which is another imbalance that we see in society. Mm-hmm. You know, like when we've asked in our survey, like how, you know, if, if your spouse or partner took less time off than you did, when we've asked, like, how did you decide who was going to take more time off, right? Like some of it was about recovering, like physically, right? And so that's another reason why a lot of, in, in couples, a lot of women stay home longer. Part of it is a physical recovery from childbirth. A lot of people said who wanted to stay home longer. So in some cases, maybe the mom wants to stay home longer. 
But in a lot of situations, it was, you know, who made more money, who had the better benefits. And so they were able to stay home and get paid. Um, and so couples are making these calculations and, and it often falls on the side of the dad going back to work more quickly. Yeah. Well, isn't it so that the lowest status work, I've, I've read it being described as such, as in the household work, tends to go to the person who is bringing in the least money. And for various reasons in an opposite sex relationship, that tends to be the woman. I mean, like, that's an interesting, that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, like, I, I think it's sometimes it's, it is just that, yeah, it is sometimes having to make that calculation of who earns more. And so maybe the person who earns more ends up being the person whose, whose career sort of takes priority, but then you still need someone to be doing things at home. And so... Yeah. Well, it makes sense. That makes sense. What are your thoughts on, and this is not a question that we had discussed previously, it's just something that's come to me. So I actually know quite a few men who quite like their women not working from a sort of status perspective. Oh, my wife doesn't have to work. Puffing their chests out. What a big man I am. Look, my wife doesn't have to work. Is there any data on that? We haven't. We haven't asked that. So so we don't... We. Yeah, I don't have any data on that from, from our work. <laughs> it's not something you've come across in your, in your research. No, it's not something we've come across in our research. I mean, like, you know, we've, we've asked women, I mean, we've asked men and women about like the ideal situation for them. And so whether it's financial or whether it's, you know, people bring their own decision making into this, but the majority of women who work full time say that that's what's best for them. Right. And so it's not necessarily all women who work would rather not be working and would rather not need to work, right? Like, yeah, so it's interesting. And again, sometimes maybe they say that's the ideal for them because of financial reasons. But we do know that, you know, women like men tend to find their work to be fulfilling and try to, you know, and tend to, it's an important part of who they are and how they see themselves. And, and so it's not, obviously work is a, is, is a means to, to provide and, and to pay for things, of course, but, but people also derive mm. meaning from their work and men and women both do. It's so interesting. I, I honestly, I don't envy your job. I think I find all of the stats and all the data it just makes my, my brain go, oh my gosh, but it's just so interesting as well. Yeah. And I mean, like, and, and I do think that, you know, like, again, I mentioned the focus groups and I, and I, I love the data and the data is so important and having the nationally representative findings are super important. But sometimes just being able to, to talk to people, the qualitative piece, like seeing that data come alive. So like hearing from dads about why they didn't take more time off or hearing from, or even hearing from people about how they didn't even know what benefits were available to them. That's the other thing we haven't talked about, but like people, Often, like, it's so confusing to even navigate your benefits. So there might be people who, who maybe would be able to take more paid time off if they even knew how to go about finding that out from, from their employers, from the HR department. And so that's the other thing, like, just the confusion when we, when we talk to people about this, there's so much confusion around what they're even allowed to do or able to do. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Really? I'm surprised by that. Surely it's made clear to them when they tell their company they're having a child. But it's, it's not always, like, that's what we found, that it's, it's not always wow. clear. People don't always really know, like, what the benefits are and the paperwork that they have to fill out. We saw that both in the survey and in, in the focus groups. It's, it's just really interesting. It's like, it's, it's a lot mm. to navigate. Are there any other stories that you've come across in your research? 
Yeah, I mean, like, I think we, we, you know, we honestly, we don't do as much qualitative work as, you know, yeah. as, as I, I would love to do. Um, you know, our, our work really is more a focus on, on quantitative data, which again, I mean, like, I, mm-hmm. it's, it's super important then to be able to make these nationally representative claims. Like, it's, it's, it's really important because again, sometimes with the qualitative work, we're really just getting like a, a like, it's, it's very anecdotal. And it really helps inform the data. So we haven't done it. We haven't done it as, as much, but we actually, and a little unrelated to all this work, but not, but not totally. We did a series of focus groups with, um, trans and non-binary adults last year. And it was just really interesting to hear, you know, like a lot of them knew from a very early age that they might not have had the words to describe themselves, but they knew from a very early age from the perspective of, of gender roles and how they felt they knew they were, they were different in some ways from what was expected of them. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that again, like plays into some of this conversation about gender roles and societal expectations that even as, as very young children, that they knew that there were some expectations of who they should be or how they should behave and what they should be like. But they knew from an early age that that wasn't them those expectations that society had of how they should behave didn't match with how they saw themselves and how they felt. And then, so I think that's so interesting, right? Because children feel those expectations from a very young age, like these, like these societal Mm. expectations start again, like, you know, with the conversation about toys, like those societal expectations are reinforced even in, you know, the types of toys that we're giving to to children. And um, so I, I, so I thought hearing, hearing those stories and the focus groups was was really interesting of just how the notion of gender is communicated to children. I feel like I've covered so much ground with Juliana and it's been so fascinating to hear that the research really reinforces and backs up a lot of what we've discussed already in this trail. One thing that really struck me from our conversation is the point at which the gender pay gap emerges. It's when women have children. This was fascinating to me and something I don't think is spoken about enough. I also really appreciated that Juliana shared how a lot of what they see in the research is down to gender differences, gender imbalances, and how this is so ingrained in who we are and we need to address this before we'll see any meaningful change. This is something that if you've been listening to the rest of the trail, you would have heard me discuss already with Marianne and Lindsay that I know personally that my own views of my career were heavily shaped by my upbringing surrounded by traditional gender roles. Next up in the trail, I'm going to be speaking to Mary Beth Ferrante. Mary Beth, a few years ago, was a senior vice president at a bank and found the return to work after maternity so infuriating, it inspired her to start Work360, where she partners with companies to change how they support caregivers. I hope to see you there. You've been listening to a Tiger Hall podcast. Quick favor. If you like this content, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a new upload from us. And of course, if you're hungry for more, and why wouldn't you be, don't forget to download the Tiger Hall app for hundreds more just like this.